right. Well, would you bow your heads with me once again, and let's direct our hearts to our King. Father God, as we quiet our hearts before you now to hear from your word, I ask that you would stir us up with love for you that is expressed by being attentive to your word. Help my mouth to be clear, my words to be true. And I ask that you would help us all to, um, to sit humbly under your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the course of 2,000 years of church history, um, it is often the case that the preaching of Jesus absolutely explodes in one region with mass conversion to Christ, but in another region, it maybe would face great hostility or flicker to life and then not really take off. We see this all over the, the course of church history and even in the book of Acts. In some communities, the gospel explodes and in others, it does not yet. Right? This morning, we get to read about one city where the gospel of Jesus took deep roots. And it stayed deeply rooted for thousands of years. This morning, we're going to read about Antioch. Antioch. Um, so you can turn to Acts chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 19 to 30. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. But scholars, Bible people who study these things, they're all over the place with how many people were in Antioch at the time that Acts was written. The reason that our modern scholars are all over the place in their guesses is because the ancient sources that we look at are all over the place. Some would say 100,000, others up to 600,000. That's a big difference. <laughs> so how many people, we, we don't know, but it was a big city. And it was located about 300 miles north of, Judea, of Jerusalem and 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. I'll be pulling up a map in a second, but Antioch today is a city located in modern Turkey. They call it Antakya, or Antakya, okay? The earthquake that just happened absolutely nailed Antakya, tragically. Some of the Christian communities there are fighting for their very lives right now, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Over the years, many famous leaders of the early church pastored in Antioch. Not just church leaders that you read about in the Bible, but beyond. Many translations of the Bible were made in Antioch. Some of our most reliable Old Testament manuscripts of that have been, were preserved and translated and copied in Antioch. 
It was a hub of Christian missionary activity. One of the early, what they call fathers of the church, was a man named Ignatius. He was a pastor or a bishop of Antioch and about one about a hundred years after Jesus Christ walked the earth. I was able to read some of Ignatius's letters to the churches in Ephesus you know, a few years ago. You can find it all. It's all free online. The letters of St. Ignatius. You can look it up. John Chrysostom. He was another famous pastor a couple hundred years after Ignatius in the late mid to late 300s. He was born in Antioch. They called him the Golden Tongue because he was a famous preacher. He was perhaps the first celebrity preacher, as you might say, but not a normal type of celebrity preacher. The common people loved him, but the rich, the wealthy, and the political elite absolutely despised him because of his bold condemnation of their excesses and corruption. And eventually, the leaders of the Byzantine Empire said, we got to get rid of this guy. So they exiled him, and he died in obscurity. But you can still read his commentaries and his sermons today, and I have some of them. I just wanted to give that brief overview to Antioch to give you this just idea. That it was a hub of Christian preaching and gospel advance, and we get to learn the beginnings of this movement here in our story this morning. So look at your Bible, if you would, Acts 11, and I'm going to read verses 19 to 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. That'd be a good epitaph right there. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Then Barnabas, verse 25, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So if you call yourself a Christian, that's when this started, in Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up. Oh, sorry, during this time, verse 27, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Verse 28, one of them, named Agabus, stood up. And through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in 
Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So this morning, we're going to walk through these verses together in, in three steps, following the different developments in the story. In verses 19 to 21, we'll see Luke's description of how the gospel of Jesus spreads to Jews and then to Gentiles. Then second, we're going to look at the story of how the early Christian leader Barnabas encourages the Gentile church in verses 22 to 24. And then third, we're going to look in verses 25 to 30 and see that even as persecution rises in Jerusalem, Christians rally in Antioch. And Antioch becomes this huge hub of gospel advance. And the main idea this morning is pretty simple. It's that the grace of the Lord Jesus' hand, the grace of the Lord Jesus that Barnabas sees and the hand of the Lord that was with the preachers of the word, the grace of the Lord Jesus' hand and the labors of Jesus' servants, many of them unnamed, create a hub of Christians in Antioch. So, the gospel spreads, verses 19 to 21. It spreads to, from Jews to Gentiles. Look at verse 19 there. Um, chapter 11, verse 19. We basically see a flashback to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. In Acts 8, verse 1, we read there, if you remember, you can even flip a couple pages back if you would like, that right after Stephen is stoned, many Christians start to flee Jerusalem because of a great persecution that breaks out. Persecution is when people are trying to hurt Christians, kill them. Saul, that we read about his conversion a few weeks ago, he was one of the leaders of this. And they, as these Christians flee Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, they scatter outwards into the dozens of Jewish communities all around the Roman Empire. If you want to contain a movement, this was not a good way to do it, right? That's what got the Apostle Paul once Saul, trying to travel all the way to all of the foreign cities to, to stamp out Christianity. Persecution made things spread like wildfire. Verse 19, they traveled, verse 19, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Why? Well, that would have felt natural to them. If you come to faith in Jesus, who's the first person that you tell? Often your family, right? Well, it was natural for a Jewish person leaving Jerusalem to go and find another Jewish community, a synagogue in a foreign city. There were synagogues all over the ancient world. And they would go to be with the people like them, who ate like them, and kept the Sabbath like they did and were circumcised and they would go and they would be in those communities and they'd tell them, guess what? We have a king. The Messiah has come. He died in Jerusalem. The religious leaders there, they, they killed him. They're trying to kill us. And, but Jesus is alive and they would tell the good news of the gospel all over the ancient world. 
Have you ever traveled overseas? Who's, who's traveled overseas? Are there McDonald's in other countries? How about Starbucks? These are like American companies, right? That'd be like a Jewish person leaving Jerusalem and going to this super pagan city like Phoenicia and seeing a synagogue. It's a taste of home. It'd be like an American in Uganda seeing a McDonald's. They're like, oh, I'm going to go there because there they speak my language, they, they eat my food. That, that's kind of what it would be like. So as these Jews are leaving, one of the reasons they are just going to Jews is that's what's comfortable. That's what they know. But look at this now. We are told men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they sail across the Mediterranean Sea hundreds of miles, at least from Cyrene, and they go and they preach about Jesus to Greek-speaking Hellenistic Gentiles living in Antioch. So, Ken, could you pull up the, the map for us? See Cyrene here on the, the far coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East? They travel, see that arrow? Kind of pixelated, but they travel all the way over to Syrian Antioch. Jerusalem is here. 300 miles up to Antioch, and Tarsus, where Paul was, see, that's right right around the corner from Antioch, actually. Um, that's where he grew up. That's where he's going to be staying in our story today, after he fled persecution in Jerusalem, probably by boat. And now we're going to see these men, they, Cyprus, see the island of Cyprus there? They traveled from the Jewish communities there and there to Antioch. You can pull that down now, Ken. We're not even told whether these men were Jews or Gentiles, though it seems that they were Jewish men who were fluent in Greek. But regardless of this backstory, we, we do know they decided to preach to the Gentiles in Antioch. See that verse in verse 20? And as they preach, a great number of people turn to the Lord. And the reason that the people in Antioch, these Gentiles, turn to the Lord is not because the men of Cyprus and Cyrene were just amazing preachers. They may have been, but we're not told that. The, the reason was not because they had this really cool program for the youth in Antioch, and they just really connected with them. It was not because they went there and they created this amazing worship experience that they could offer to everyone with door prizes or whatever. It's not because they were really culturally relevant or seeker-sensitive or had this great praise team or contemporary worship songs that the young people like or they sang the golden oldies or whatever it was. No, that's not what we're told. It's simply this. Because the hand of the Lord was with them. That's how people turn to the Lord, friends. It's easy to draw a crowd. But only the Lord can make people turn to the Lord. He's got to work to convict humans of their sin and their need for forgiveness and life through Jesus. I just want you to pause and let this sink in for a moment. 
the hand of the Lord was with them. How many of you have helped a child cross the road? Held their hand to keep them steady on their feet? Ever had their legs bottom out from them, under them? And you catch them by the hand, you gotta be careful, you pull a kid's hand out of their arm out of their socket. I've done that a couple times to not my children. Well, I think one of ours, but some of my younger brothers. Right? But what we see in that image is a stronger helping the weaker, guiding, protecting, lending strength. In the same way, the hand of our Creator is with us, His people. We are not alone. We don't need to be afraid. God is with them. He is with us. And as people are turning to the Lord in Antioch, and as the number of Gentile, or these are non-Jewish Christians, grows right alongside the Jewish converts, it makes a big splash in the Christian community of Jesus' followers. In fact, news of this big turning to the Lord reaches all the way back down 300 miles to the only almost entirely Jewish church in Jerusalem. This church in Jerusalem, they had been facing persecution, but now we had read in Acts 9, verse 31, that they are facing a, a brief reprieve, time of peace, and it was during this time of relative peace that all these goings-on in Antioch are taking place. And when the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they catch wind of these things, they, they send Barnabas from their midst in, in Jerusalem on this long journey up. Did he take the boat? Did he take the camel? We don't know. But he goes all the way up to Antioch and goes to check things out. We see this similar pattern back in Acts chapter 8. Remember when the Samaritans come to faith in Christ through the preaching of the evangelist Philip? They come to faith in Jesus, even a sorcerer named Simon, and Peter and John go to check things out, to lend their authority, to place their hands on them as representatives of the, the, the apostles of Jesus. Right? Well, here we see a similar thing. Barnabas comes, and this is the second part of our story today. He comes in verses 22 to 24, and he encourages the Gentile church. I'll read that again for us. Look at verse 22. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. A really literal translation of this phrase is just simply this. He saw the grace of God and was glad. Maybe your translation has that. It's literally what it says. Think about this. How do you see a hurricane? Can you see the wind? Can you see that big spiral? Well, you can on a radar, but you, you can't see a hurricane. You can see what the wind does. How about an earthquake? How do you see an earthquake. Can you see the tectonic plates <clears throat> popping and shifting? No. 
But you can see all over the news the fallout, the wreckage. Barnabas saw the grace of God, and the NIV has a great way of putting this. He, he sees what the grace of God has done. He sees the ripple effects of God's grace in that community. God's love and his kindness towards Gentiles and Jews here in this community has a massive effect. He sees the grace of God all around him working in people, transforming them. What does grace look like? When the earthquake of grace hits somebody's life, hits a community, you see grace shaking the pride of men like a mighty earthquake, humbling the arrogant, helping them see their sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness like everybody else. You see violent, angry men full of self-righteousness. I would never do that. Filled with love and kindness and tenderness towards the weak. You see former idol worshipers, people addicted to sin and pleasure, singing praises to Jesus. You see people who once worshipped money as a god, trying constantly to get more possessions. You see them giving their money generously for others. We see that at the end of our story. Grace does that. You see the grace of God by seeing the fruit of the gift of Christ that has been produced in the hearts and lives of the people who trust him. And so when Barnabas sees this, when he sees the grace of God at work all around him, when he sees the hurricane of God's love that had turned Antioch and the communities there upside down, he was glad. You see that? He's happy. He's a happy man. There's nothing that makes a Christian leader's heart, a pastor's heart, more happy than seeing the grace of Jesus shaping the lives of people. God's love impacting people. It makes Barnabas' day. And so, seeing that grace at work, look what he does. He encourages the church to remain true to the Lord Jesus. He comes alongside them like an older brother encourages a younger brother who's about to set up, set out on the same career path, right? He's, Barnabas is like an older brother saying, I've walked this journey, and he encourages them. He exhorts them. He calls them, stay true to Jesus. Don't drift. Don't take your eyes off him. This is an especially urgent call for people who have recently turned to the Lord. It's all new. It's fresh. It's exciting. But when the excitement of the newness fades, keep your eyes on Jesus. Remain true to Jesus with all your heart. All your heart. Now look at what's said in verse 24 of Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
You ever heard people say that? Oh, he's a good guy. You ever heard that? Ah, oh, so-and-so is a good guy. Um, I've heard that said of people that you say, really? Okay, maybe from one angle. He was really nice to his dog. He was a good guy. <laughs> good job. You know, I mean, it's, it's really pretty ob objective, right? If you, if you look at me in my worst moment, would you say, wow, that was a really, really prideful, selfish, snarky thing to say. Oh, <laughs> he's a good guy. <laughs> well, no, no, look at this part of my life. Not that part, right? The, the reality is, all of us, are at the same time sinners and saints, right? I mean, we, we are broken people. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only no, nobody's good except God alone. But the Bible is not afraid to say Barnabas is a good guy. He's a good man, but it clarifies it. Why is he a good man? Because the goodness of the living God himself dwells in him. He's full of the Holy Spirit and the fruit that the Spirit brings through trust. He's full of the Spirit, and he's full of faith, because the God, the good God, dwells in this man. If you encounter Barnabas, you encounter the Spirit of God in an earthen vessel. And he's a good man. And he was good for the church of Jesus in Antioch. Through his ministry, many more people were turning to the Lord. And now so many people were becoming Christian. Barnabas realizes, I need some help. I need the big guns to come help me disciple all these clueless Gentiles who have not a clue. They're like, Old Testament, what? <laughs> they, they're not like Jewish people who are pre-primed for this. Going to synagogue all their lives until they finally realize the king has come. Our, our Messiah is here. Let's worship him now. No, the, Barnabas needs help. And so he goes to the ex-rabbi, Saul, who's staying in Tarsus. And I don't know if you remember when we had our map up. Ken, do you want to go back one click? So there's Antioch. See how Tarsus? That's just a little skip and a jump over. He, he goes over to Tarsus. And he gets Saul. You can pop off it now. And verse 26, look at what they do together. Bible boot camp. <laughs> For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. For one whole year, they're training people about Jesus. Wish I could have been in that class. And under the teaching of Saul and the encouragement of Barnabas, you have a mighty hub of gospel activity. So much so that no longer do they define Christianity as a sect of Jerusalem or in a vague term of the way. Remember it was called, like, this is the way. There's a few places already in Acts where we see that they were calling it the way. Well, now they call them Christians, which is basically a word meaning one who is associated with the Christ, a Christ one. Here at Antioch, far from Jerusalem, and the Jews 
Christians, both Jew and Gentile, are named after their Christ. A Jewish Messiah, born in Bethlehem, the city of kings, murdered in Jerusalem, and raised to rule on the throne of heaven. Now let's look at another part of the story. Once again, Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas, remember? And now they've got this band of spiritual leaders coming up from Jerusalem to Antioch in verse 27, this is a team of Christian prophets, which would have been men and probably some women. We read in Acts 21 that Philip, remember the evangelist Philip? He's got four daughters who prophesied. Um, so men and maybe some women who spoke truth to God's people on God's behalf by the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So these prophets come, and one of these prophets was named Agabus. Following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he makes the church in Antioch aware of a great crisis that was beginning to take place throughout the whole Roman world. This crisis was a great famine, a food shortage, coming during the reign of the Emperor Claudius, the Emperor of Rome. And as Agabus makes known the news of this famine, some people think, well, it's just a prediction. Well, they raise the money for it right away. Which and to send to their Jewish brothers and sisters, which seems to indicate this was a famine that had already started to some extent. And what Agabus is saying is, this is going to continue for a while. We need help. And so, in response, these, this largely Gentile church, non-Jewish, takes up a big collection of money, and they send it to minister to the needs of their Jewish brothers and sisters who are already suffering from hunger in the region of Judea, south of Jerusalem. So one of the ways that prophecy works in the church of Jesus is the same way it worked all throughout the Old Testament. It was aimed at making God's people aware of great need and what God is calling them to do. And so once the money was collected, once they became aware of this need, they collected this money and they sent it down, 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 past Jerusalem to the region of Judea, a lot of poor Christians living there, outside of Jerusalem in those small communities. Why were they outside of Jerusalem? Well, remember, they'd all left Jerusalem for the most part because of the persecution. And some of them went to the region of Judea and the smaller towns. And so they're sending the money to help their brothers and sisters in Christ who were in trouble. Um, when Christians, when famine was hitting these Christians, could they go to their other Jewish friends for help? No, right? They're, they're traitors. The Jewish religious establishment had murdered the guy, killed the guy that they worship now as king. So these Christians were, they needed the family of Jesus to help them because there had nobody else. Right? It's like a Christian who comes to faith in Christ in the Muslim context. If they have a child that gets sick and they need financial help and they're a Christian, their Muslim friends and neighbors, if they're aware of their conversion, they're not going to help. They need the Christian community. They need 
each other. We need each other. In the book of Acts, the Christian life is church life, community life. There is no other category. We need the people of God. We need each other. So once again, the main idea is simple. The grace of the Lord Jesus' hands and the labors of Jesus' servants create a hub of Christians in Antioch. Now, I have three specific applications that I want to help us think about together as we close. The first one is that the men responsible for this massive missions movement in Antioch were unnamed. They, they simply called men from Cyprus and Cyrene. I really like that. God knows their names. We won't until heaven. Of course, there's other men in the book of Acts who are named in this story. Key characters in the book. So Paul, Barnabas, Agabus. But not these guys. They're unnamed soldiers of Jesus. They're men who have left their homes. They've crossed the sea and they've preached Jesus boldly to people they're not related with. That they didn't even know before. We don't know their names, but their legacy still continues even today. For every missionary of Jesus Christ, every disciple maker who has a book written about them, there are a million more disciple makers, moms and dads, kids, single, married, of all walks of life, making Jesus followers in every nation, in relative obscurity, in a million small places around this globe. They tell others the good news. They see people come to faith. They die. And a hundred years later, their great-grandkids don't even know their first names. But the Lord knows those who are His. And the splash that these unnamed men's lives made send ripples out even today. The church of Antioch has been a massive blessing to the global church of Jesus. As I mentioned before, even preserving some of those key Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts that we read in our Bibles today. I want this to be an encouragement to us. A hundred years from now, the year 2,123, every single one of us will have died if Jesus has not returned yet. How will the people of Jesus living in Granville in 2,123 tell our history? Maybe they'll say something like this. Men and women from Hartford, Whitehall, and Granville proclaimed Jesus in our region, and the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people turned to the Lord. Our names will probably not be remembered, but the Lord's name will be praised forever and ever. And his name will get the credit. That's our hope and our prayer. Which leads to the second thing. In verse 21, it's the hand of the Lord that ultimately gets the credit for people coming to Christ. When Barnabas shows up in Antioch, he sees the grace of God 
and he was glad. Many of us don't get opportunities to go around and visit other churches often because we're committed to one spiritual family. But when Christians do visit other churches, what do they usually look for? What are we looking for in other churches? Maybe a good kids' ministry, people our age who are like us, solid preaching, motivational preaching, upbeat, modern music, the golden oldie hymns that we resonate with from our childhood. What are, what are people looking for? None of it's bad in and of itself. I mean, maybe people do look for bad things, right? But look what Barnabas is looking for and what he sees. He sees the grace of the Lord. He sees God's amazing grace at work, producing a com community of people who love Jesus and love each other, and they've turned to the Lord. My prayer is that would be the community that we are. That that's would be what would mark our community. We are not a perfect people, but grace is at work in our midst. And as God's people, may we be, may we tune our hearts to be on the lookout for the grace of God that's in at work in the lives of those around us. The grace of Jesus at work. It's really easy to see things that are wrong with other people. Right? There's a lot of reasons for that. It can make us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> I'm not like that, you dummy. I'm smarter than that. I'd never do that. How could they think that? How could they say that? How could they be so uninformed? Just leave the Facebook comment threads. No, don't. But, you know, we, we love to feel like we're right. But may God create a work in your heart and in my heart that we would be a people in tune and on the lookout for the grace of God at work. God's kindness touching people's lives. Maybe it's just a flicker. But they were not who they once were. And their lives are being changed and transformed by Jesus. Just like the Apostle Paul who can write to the Corinthian church, which we learned when we went through the Corinthian church, there was 10 major issues that Paul addresses in that church. Things like getting drunk on communion wine or um, sleeping around. I mean, we could go on and on with all the issues, suing each other in court. And Paul starts off his letter saying, I thank God for the grace that's at work in you. Oh, he was looking for grace, and that's what Barnabas sees here. And the third thing, the final thing I want us to end our time in the Word with is that we as believers, we need to be encouraged to remain true to the Lord. See that in verse 23? Barnabas' name, we learned earlier, his name was Joseph. But he was renamed Son of Encouragement. Do you remember why or when he gets his name? What does he do? Sold a field and gave all the money away, which means he's probably on the wealthier side. And he gave all his money away, which was a mighty encouragement to the early church. And he comes here to see the grace of God at work and then to encourage the people 
of Jesus to remain true to the Lord. I want you to just think with me for a minute about your life. How many decades have you lived? Some of you haven't even gotten to a decade yet. Mercy, you've got one decade under your belt. Right? Think about your life in the terms of decades, right? What's the average age in the United States? The average lifespan, 77. Think about it. How much longer in life do you have if the law of averages holds true? For some of you, maybe a few years. Maybe a decade. For some, the finish line is really close. What would Barnabas say to you? Obviously, we don't know when the Lord will take us, but what would Barnabas say? I think he'd say this. He'd say, remain true to the Lord. Remain faithful. Don't take your foot off the gas at the end of the Christian race and just coast over the finish line. Press in. Run. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Your king's waiting with open arms right at the end of the race, ready to say well done. Enter into the joy of your master. And ask for eyes to see grace. Grace of Never get tired of seeing grace. Others of us might not be right near the finish line. We don't know, but um, if the law of averages hold, I'm 34. What do I have? Maybe four decades? Obviously, the Lord could take me home tonight. To live as Christ, to die as gain. But I just want to reflect on this. Time flies, right? It seems to go faster and faster every single year that I live. If God's mission for me on this earth has me living till I'm 74 and I look back, I'm sure it will all feel like a breath. Because I know the last three years it felt like a breath. But looking forward towards that age, it kind of feels like a long time. Right, kids, does 77 seem like a long time away? I guarantee you when you're 77 and you look back, it won't feel like a long time. When I was setting out at the beginning of seminary, I thought, four years of my life, that feels like a long time. It's a blip. A good one. But it was there and gone so fast. But so much can happen in four decades. So much joy, so many gifts from the Lord, and much tragedy can happen in four decades. A lot of mistakes and a lot of sins can happen in four decades. If Barnabas was here addressing the younger of us today, I think this is what he would do. He would put his arms around each one of us, and he would point up to the cross, and he would say, brother, sister, remember what Jesus did for you there? He gave his life for you. You know the song, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross? Have you ever heard that song? <laughs> Jesus, keep me near the cross, hoping, trusting ever. It's a good song. They go home and listen to it. Stay close to Jesus. 
Stay faithful to him. It's a long race, this Christian life. There's a lot of ups and downs. It's really easy to get cynical about the church, about people, because people are sinners. If people fail, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. Christian life is a marathon. Run your eyes on the prize. Well done, good and faithful servant. Stay in his word. Listen to him. Talk with him often. Christians talk to God. It's what we do. We're children of the living God. We have the ear of our creator. He wants to hear from us, right? Don't stop meeting with his family. No matter how broken. Sharing the table. Holding the bread together. I'm connected to you. We're one body. Through Christ. And remember always. The hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord. That we read about. It was, it's with you. May that image be in your mind. Of a dad. Holding the hand of his little daughter. His little son. As they cross. The dangerous road. Of life. God is holding us. He's with us. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would keep us near the cross. Jesus tells the parable of the four soils, and it is a sobering parable, Lord. 25% are good soil. The rest walk away for various reasons. The cares of this world, the temptations of the devil, desire for other things. Please, Father, keep us coming back to Jesus. Pray that the beauty of Jesus will capture our hearts. I pray that you would draw us, each one of us, closer to you today. And finally, I ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see your grace at work in people. In Jesus' name, amen.